Well, um, tonight I'm very pleased to have as a very special guest, um, someone whose accessible, uh, clear and concise publications have been instrumental in my own path. Um, someone who has had the chance to associate with what I would say is some of the big names in, in modern Western hermeticism and occult philosophy. I have with me uh, tonight, or this morning, I guess in his case, Mr. Mark Stavish. Mark, welcome to the uh, show and thank you for coming to talk to us. Oh, thank you so very much for the invitation. I'm glad we were finally able to line this up. Yeah, likewise. I have to say, um, so far for me, this podcast has been you know, a really fantastic way to connect with people from various important fields and traditionalist philosophy, occultism, Buddhism, uh, many other important things. Um, it's brought me in contact with, with a few authors, um, and in particular, um, some authors that I never thought I would have the privilege to talk to, and you're one of those authors, so I'm very, very excited to, uh, to have a chat with you. Um, I, I think a good way to kick things off would be to go through maybe your current work with the Hermetic Institute and the kind of things you're aiming to achieve there, um, and particularly for the listeners that may not be entirely familiar with, with you and your work. Well, the Institute for Hermetic Studies, I started that over 20 years ago, and uh, we have, through Teachable, a complete online course of audio and, and support programs for folks who are interested in traditional esotericism. We have a, a great deal there that is also on uh, folk magic, particularly the, what we call Pennsylvania German magic or Brauka powwow, which has seen a bit of a revival over the last 10 years. But also, that is foundational magic to those looking at, at where is the continuity between classical magic and the grimoires. So it's it's in that point, but it's also a magic that survived up until the 20th century. My uh, family was involved, and my brother was visiting last weekend, and we were going through this box. Literally, it's this old treasure chest, a small one, like you see on a pirate ship, right? But it's a small one, and we're pulling out old family pictures that uh, we haven't looked at in in decades. And there was my great aunt's uh, notebook. And it's a funny looking notebook that has, uh, you know, what's it say here? Blue ribbon wheat paste It's probably from the thirties. And uh, it says it's from something. And inside is all these handwritten Psalms and prayers and notations on uh, folk magic, you know? So that, those are the kind of things that, that we have and uh, grew up around. And also then with that, the early into mid 20th century esoteric orders, my great uncle was deeply involved in those. And uh, I was as well for many years. And uh, so having that experience gives me a different view on, on what constitutes an esoteric perspective. And of course, I, I was involved with philosophies of nature with Jean Dubuis for, uh, for many years. Um, so we have the, the Institute's program of study. We have a host of publications that are available online, and there's a host of free online resources. Of course, nothing's ever free. Someone's got to pay to keep it there, okay? And uh, those such as Vox Hermes, which is our blog, and we're doing more radio, in not radio, but uh, interviews. We call them Conversations from the Edge, interviews with uh, authors on topics that go more in-depth and more detailed. And we kind of consider these archival interviews because I'm get, trying to get them done with people who don't have a lot of interview uh time that we that we know these people by name and maybe by reputation but there isn't a lot out there that they've said or done that's been recorded for posterity so we're trying to do some of those and uh of course there's always uh, a book or two in publication or in the process and that's that's what we're doing right 
I can certainly vouch for your courses. I've done a couple myself, um, including the Liturgy uh, to Hermes, which I'm I'm currently preparing for. So I can I can definitely say they're all of a high quality, and I would recommend that people go and check your website out. It's um, uh, invaluable for resources on on these issues. Um, today, I think we can we can have an important conversation. Um, on matters that in some way I, I haven't really got to the bottom of in my own head, you know, even after reading your book, and I'm, I'm still wrangling with some of these issues that are in, in Western hermetic practices, um, I thought it would be good to understand some of these issues and some of these practices through the prism of um, a friend of yours, uh, Joseph Leshewski. I hope I pronounced that right. Is that how you say his last name? I um, uh, I, I hope so. It, was, it always seemed to change, so I'll accept that one, Right, you know, okay. it's uh, yeah. It's he sent, t- tended to do the W more as a V, like a German V, like a chef's V, like, like soft, lot yeah. soft F. But uh, Shusky Lashevsky, we're good. Okay, my name is Stavish. Everyone else pronounces it Stavish or something Stavish. wrong. It's it's all right. It's. I'll just put it down to my my Australian naivety. We uh, yeah, it, I'm cool. That's so, how that. we say it yeah. here. <laughs> that's uh, that's right. <laughs> Um, so Joe was a friend of yours, obviously, and you go into this in a lot of detail in your excellent book, um, The Magical World of Joseph uh, Lushewski, which um, I came across when I was trying to get to the bottom of Joe myself. Um, I'd read a couple of his books, uh, Grimoires and, Al- on, and Alchemy, on, on those subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And the details of his life were really hard to come across. I went to his website at, at some point, um, which was kind of not really happening when I got there. And um, I'd seen little bits of his writing and other books. Um, actually, I initially came across him in um, a little book called Israel Regardi, His Final Thoughts and Words, um, mm-hmm. which is where I came across this really quite strange and I thought out of place article, um, a little bit uncharacteristic given what was being discussed because it, it was a scientific paper on electromagnetism and the origins of life or something like that. Yes. Um, right. so ever since then I became like fascinated with this guy, um, because in a way he was so, uh, mysterious, um, so, so I think like a good place to start would be maybe if you could briefly go over your relationship with Joe. Um, and basically, you know, how does someone come across a character like you dropped? Joe? Sorry, can is that better? Is that better? Yeah. So, so how does um, how does someone come across a character like Joe? Because he's he's obviously <laughs> a one of a kind. You know? <laughs> how does someone come across a character like Joe? Uh, well, uh, that's a tough question to answer, and uh, I think it's. <laughs> It's karma. <laughs> it must be. It must be. And, and, I, and, and I say that in all the possible manifestations of the word, uh, because, you know, he and I, uh, we briefly exchanged some emails uh, years ago, uh, and then my computer crashed, and, and that was it. And uh, I was not able to re- recapture those and bring the conversation back. And then maybe seven years later, something like that, he, he contacts me again. Uh, in the meantime, I received a communication from a friend of his. I didn't know that he was a friend of his at the time, but in his book on evocation, he mentions doing an evocation with a friend of his who would eventually go off to uh, be a chaplain in the U.S. military. And uh, I, in fact, did meet that fellow, and I, I prepared some instructional program for him on his request. 
And uh, we talked at length. And everything that he told me was identical with what Joe mentions. Okay, and I, I need to make that clear. Because as we get into Joe, it, it gets very uh, complicated. And uh, so Joe contacted me. No, I, I know what it was. Uh, I contacted Joe because I had read his book. And uh, in fact, before then, I, I contacted Pat Seleski out, out your way. And I think he's in New Zealand. And because I said, now you worked with these guys. You know, do you remember them? And he said, very politely and helpful. He said, I think that you're, you're, you probably have some good conversations with him on alchemy. I said, okay, fine. Uh, later on, I found out that uh, both of them knew each other even more familiarly than, than I had expected during the first production of the old Golden Dawn correspondence course that uh, uh, Falcon Press was, you know, New Falcon Press was, mm -hmm. was putting out at the time. Yeah. So, um, you know, he and I corresponded. We, we, chatted on the phone. I still remember when he called, and it was a very interesting call. He told me some things, uh, many of which I had heard from other people, and that's what made the, in, in, the uh, conversation interesting, is I, I knew that uh, these were almost word for word what I'd heard from others. So I took him as at his word as, as being authentic. And uh, of course, I read some of his books, wrote some stuff for him. He, he read some of mine. And uh, we had a relationship that lasted for a very long time in which we communicated uh, almost daily, depending on what was going on. How do you run into someone like that? Again, you, you have to have a, a karmic connection, as they say. Uh, I have a good friend, an engineer, who uh, in his youth, his, through his father, he managed to meet a fellow of, uh, we can only describe him of being as of exceptional quality. You know, the fellow is also an engineer, uh, but highly tuned into the, the psychic dimensions. Okay. So these people are out there. Uh, I think this fellow that my friend knew was of a higher caliber than Joe. But the fact is, people are out there, you know, and same with Jean Dubuis. He was a spectacular person, human being, in terms of adept. But it's, it's not, uh, you don't see them. They're not promoting themselves. Hmm. You you have to have a certain uh, willingness to engage in the uniqueness of each relationship, and they tend to be curmudgeons. They don't <laughs> they don't take uh, uh, and in a polite way, I should say, a polite way. They they don't have time. Time is meaningful to them. They understand the power of time and Saturn. They don't they don't waste their time on nonsense. Hmm. You know, like we talked about earlier, prior to the show, a lot of the the foolish, stupid things that contemporary occultists are involved with in terms of politics. They don't waste their time on that. Sure. Yeah, he definitely seems one of a kind. And he comes across that way as, as a little curmudgeonly. Um, certainly, it's a, the portrait you paint in your book to some degree. Um, a little polite. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and you censored him, of course, which you freely admit in the book. Um, you know, the language he used could, could get a little bit colorful, um, I'm led to believe. <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> they say that uh, Madame Blavatsky could swear like a sailor. Right. You know, so I, I wish we had a recording of that for comparison's sake. Yeah, I mean, it yeah, was yeah. some of the stuff he's... And the, there are localisms, too, so they're very colloquial. It's very funny, very yeah. funny stuff. Yeah, I can, it kind of feels like a kindred spirit because I have that 
that problem as well, I'd say. Um, I, I can say with confidence that I, I probably never had the pleasure of running into someone like that. So I guess it's just not in my karma. But anyway, your book, you know, was great because it gave me access to, you know, someone who was kind of a luminary in, in some ways. Um, one, one of the things you relate to the reader in the book and one of the things that appealed to me in his own works was his kind of hatred of abstractions, like uh, intellectual abstractions. Um, and, and in all his books, he constantly hammers this hatred home. And um, one of the things he insists on is getting results. Um, is this an unusual thing amongst the cultists today, do you think? It seems to stand out to me as being uh, very unusual. Well, it is, and it shouldn't be. That's the point. It is, and yet it shouldn't be. You know, uh, if any of your listeners are familiar with uh, tantric practices, you know, when you can receive a tantric empowerment initiation, whatever you want to call it, you're given a practice, a sadhana, and that's the same as a liturgy. And uh, you're told where it came from, how it's done, and what you're to expect. Uh, that's it. It's, it's, not, it's not an abstraction. Hmm. And... Um, when you undertake various ritual practices, the problem is too many people are book learned. And I know that, that Pat Zaleski goes off on this quite a bit with the people who read about the Golden Dawn, and all they know is what they read about regarding what they read, what he wrote, rather than you know experiences and other things. So you have folks doing the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, and they don't even know what they're trying to get rid of. Hmm. Yeah, you know, so you, or they're invoking something and they don't really understand, well, well, how does this relate to me? How does this work in and through me? Mm. Yeah, so uh, you, you have a lot of problems in that area of ambiguity. So precision is the mechanism of enlightenment. Now, precision is the mechanism of time and reality. Ambiguity is a lot. Yeah, I mean, yeah that's why yeah. Pe people Sorry. who say, I'm going to try. Well, there's no trying. You either do it or you don't. Hmm. And try is what people say when they don't really want to try. They want an excuse to fail. And you, when you enter into the magical activity, you have to enter into it with the notion of success is a foregone conclusion. That's what we talk about the doctrine of faith. And you see that in Renaissance magic as well, whether we're talking about Ficino or Bruno or Agrippa or any of that, whether we're talking about new thought, you know, that's the notion. You must believe that you can do this and that you will do this, that you will not give up until it is done. Hmm. I can, I will, I must. And that is a fundamental premise that is lacking in many occult circles today. And but that was not lacking in Joe. And he would often use that same phrase, same phrase used by Yogananda, same phrase used, I think, by Vivekananda and by others. Uh, we see that in David Goddard, the Navy SEAL. I can, I will, I must. You have focus, because now all your energies are focused on the accomplishment of the goal, and you know what that goal is. Even if it's just somewhat vaguely, you still know there's something. There's something precise within a framework that, that is to be occurred. And that is that is the nature of it, rather than this kind of, you know, loose experimentation. And and of course, as um, Alan Miller uh, would say, work, 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 which is the last thing many people want to do. Um, 
another thing I think occult people um, often do is they retreat into imagination. And um, this is something he's really, really harsh on throughout his books is that kind of difference between acting in the real world and just imagining things to be the case, you know, dressing up in clothes and, and acting like a, you know, a silly uh, Egyptian, I think Christopher Hyatt once said. So it's, it's kind of, it seems to be that these practices attract those kinds of people for that reason. Would I be correct in, in, in assuming that to some degree? Yes, and I think we, we talked about this briefly before the show, is what, and I've talked about it openly, People have to admit to themselves consciously why they're going to magic. And we say magic in particular because there's the notion of action or control, the, the, the implication of some ability to change your life or destiny or fate through it. And people have to admit to it that I am unhappy with myself. Okay, and some will say it more vaguely, I am unhappy with my life, which is really a way of saying you're unhappy with yourself. You have to take full ownership of it. I do not like who I am. I do not like the way I act. I do not like the way I think. I do not like the way my life is expressing itself. I don't like being the 98-pound weakling who gets bullied. I don't like being the fat girl who can't get a date. Uh, I don't like any of these things. And I wish to change. Now, once you've said that, the wish must become a desire. The desire must become an overwhelming focal point from which there is no return. That's it. And that's the failure point, not only to openly admit why you're there, but then to, to become fully obsessed with the completion of the goal. Hmm. And magic will amplify that. The ritual work amplifies what you bring to it. But it also amplifies everything that holds in your way. Hmm. You know, when you when you drop to the floor to do a push-up, you have no intention of ever moving a floor. You're not lifting weights because you plan on lifting weights. I mean, unless you're in a, I know, a, I know some kind of Olympic contender and that's a professional occupation. Most people lift, weight, lift weights for physical health and wellness, you know, so that they can do other things with their muscles so that they can do other things with their bodies. Hmm. It's the same, and what happens is you need opposition for that to take place. So what folks don't understand often is when they invoke the energies of uh, uh, Venus to get a new girlfriend or a new boyfriend, what they're all, which is a social thing, by the way. And Venus has not, not just to do with physical relationships and sexuality, but also all human interaction. Okay, all human relationships. Think of it as a dance. Think of it as a giant dance floor where all the different, uh, you know, because it's a seven-pointed star where all these different energies are moving in a, in a harmonious waltz, if you will. Okay, like a maybe a 19th century, you know, ballroom. Okay, you have to <clears throat> realize that when you bring up this idea of I want someone in my life to to love me and to have a relationship with or whatever it happens to be or maybe just to get laid what you're also bringing up is the clip-off of it the obstacle because if you don't overcome the obstacle how can you get to the thing you're after so you do all these rituals of jupiter to get money or maybe the sun you know 
that also means you have to bring up all the other things as to why you haven't gotten it. Hmm. Am I making this point clear? Because yeah. without that opposition, there's nothing to achieve or overcome. There's nothing to realize. So you have to realize your obstacles before you can realize your goals. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's one of the things I've always wondered is, you know, a lot of people that are attracted to magic and, and do a spell to find a girlfriend or make more money or get, you know, millions of dollars. Is that a reflection of dysfunctional parts of your personality? And would it just be easier maybe to go and do a bit of self-work with a, a, you know, not a psychiatrist necessarily, but maybe a psychotherapist, get on top of those elements of your personality that, that maybe need some work and, and then maybe take on magic after that? Do you think that's a relevant way to, to look at things? Well, sure. And, and we're working on a program at the Institute that, right now for that. And it's just for men because men have been so weakened and debilitated over the last 30 years, mm. you know, that it's terrible to be a young man now. So we're working yeah. on a program just for them. And, you know, and it's easier when you're sitting in a room with men or you teleconference to admit to being a loser, you know, and uh, why you are, okay, and, and what your obstacles are. Because then you recognize, okay, because men tend to be harsh to one another. And if they're not, they should be in some ways, at least in private, toughen each other up a little bit. And that's something Joe knew. Joe is a tough guy, okay? He grew up in coal cracking country, you know, at the, with, you know, his father was a World War II veteran. These guys went off and fought in Europe and then came back into coal mines. And if you've never been in a coal mine, you don't understand what that's like, okay? And uh, they, that, was, that was a tremendously difficult period. Okay. And that not only that, but it was an industry that was dying at the time too. So where do you go from there? Mm. Uh, and I, I understand that as well. So I, I think that the toughness aspect is essential. And that toughness is and that toughness in a personal toughness, but we mean personal resilience that all the great yogis, all the great adepts talk about um, is missing in contemporary culture, contemporary manhood, and contemporary esotericism. Mm. Because it's only through that resilience that you, that you stay focused, you're able to over recognize and overcome your obstacles, you're able to self-actualize. Okay, Not just realize, but actualize, bring it forth into expression, those goals which you have. Mm. There seems to be a real emphasis on the divine feminine or to on feminine elements these days, um, particularly in in a lot of these scenes, in these kind of pseudo Eastern mystic scenes and and all these kinds of things. So it's, I think it's valuable work that you're you're doing here to bring that that more masculine element um, back to young men who, quite frankly, have been completely brainwashed uh, not to have it. So that's um, extremely positive. I guess on the flip side for Joe, um, what comes across in his book is that, sorry, your book, is that he was tough and he had these resilient um, elements to his personality, but he, he also had other elements that were probably getting in his way a little bit during his lifetime. Um, do you think the context of his upbringing had a lot to do with that? Sure, as does with each of us. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's very easy to... Uh for people to read his books or read my book and, and 
uh, be critical of someone they didn't know. It's always easy for people to do that. But we have to understand people contextually, too. Sure. As again, I, I dealt with, I worked in housing. I dealt with drug addicts and strippers and whores. I dealt with drug dealers. Okay. Um, I understand them. It doesn't mean I make excuses for them. And I don't know what they need to do. And, and I know what they need to do to not do that anymore. And that was part of my job. But you have to understand first where someone is at and how they got to where they're at before you can get them to where they need to go. Mm -hmm. Sure. And you understanding the, you know, when, when I hear the people who criticize Lashevsky or me, and I look at you, you have no idea. <laughs> you have no clue what that world was like. Uh, and it's it was hard and it was brutal. Yeah. I'm I mean, sure. he would go, he went home after school and would go work in a, in a family mine. You see, a lot of the old mines, the pits, there was actually a pit that went straight down into the ground wow. that were no longer considered commercially viable. They'd go down there and get their own coal to oh. heat their house with. Wow. I, rem I remember, you know, uh, at the end of when I was still a very small child, I still remember coal being delivered. So people don't understand, uh, you know, what the, the, the luxury that they exist in, in terms of ease of access. You know, there, there's an arrogance in, in, in the youth, and the arrogance is thinking that somehow they're better just because it's easier. Well, that came from somewhere and somewhere else. A lot mm -hmm. of people did the hard work to make that car possible or to make that food possible and make that. And uh, the ease of the you know access, such as what we're doing now, the idea of having this conversation even 20 years ago would have been a technological challenge, but also a financial one. It wouldn't have been, is, it, we do this at almost no cost, right? Mm -hmm. We're doing mm -hmm. Skype here. Yeah. That couldn't have happened 20 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, Leshevsky grew up in a very physically demanding and oppressive environment in which yeah. blue-collar, working-class culture and all of the worst aspects of that, of a veteran, you know, a post-war culture were prominent, also in which, you know, the Roman Catholic Church's doctrines and teachings were, were um, extremely uh, present mm. in everything that was done. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been extremely tough. Um, and as you say, it's difficult for a young person like myself to even even have any idea of what that was like. Um, we have such petty concerns today, really. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it certainly comes across in his book that he's a tough, tough cookie, for sure. Um, yeah. One of the things I was interested in, though, is, is how does a guy come from that kind of environment, that, that really tough, you know, they're playing sports, they're beating each other up at lunch break, whatever it is, and then... Um, when he was well, 15, I think I mean, it was. I mean, I mean, how does he then go from that to the heptameron of Peter Diabano? You know, it just seems such an incredible leap. And I was wondering, it's did not. you have any insight on that? Or Yeah. yeah. It's, it's how do I get out of this place? Right, right. It's the same thing that, you know, why does, why does a young girl suddenly think that being a stripper and, and a prostitute is a way to, to uh, better herself? Because she's got no other skills. She sees no other op option or opportunity. Why does a guy become a drug dealer? Because he sees no other opportunity. doesn't mean it isn't there, but that's what they see. From their perspective, this is the way out. You know, as I think it was uh, you know, Mike Tyson said about boxing, boxing is what you do when you've got nothing else. Hmm. 
and and magic is what you do when you've got nothing else. So that has to be admitted. People have to come to grips with that. That's and you know he he wanted he was he he knew he was capable of more. He wanted to be more. He wanted to do more. He wanted to to show these people uh, that he was that he was you know in some ways better than them, and in some ways he was. And people need to understand that while that sounds you know arrogant and egotistical, and it is. There's also truth to it, okay. And it may not be the truth, you know. We so we work with what we've got. That's I can't bring that back enough. We work with what we've got and where we are. And for him, magic was going to be the mechanism, excuse me, where he would get the resources to move on and have a better life. Hmm. So, um, one of the things no one was going to pay for his college. No, hundred percent. They're not going to be yeah. paying for it. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So it's completely understandable that you would go that way. I totally get it. Um, and and he ended up going to college, didn't he? So he did an engineering degree and a and a master's, I believe. Yeah, he did. And and you know the the, the information around that is is confusing, yeah. but you know I was able to confirm that of course he did get uh, uh, he did get his his degrees, uh, electrical engineering. I think it was from. University of Maryland, and uh, he eventually got uh, a PhD from uh, Pacifica, I believe, or one of the aspects of Pacifica University or something like that later in the day. Um, his, his did his wife, his wife did got one, I think it was in biology uh, from that school as well. Because I saw the diplomas, they were actually sent to me. Uh, the copies of the diplomas were sent to me. Right. So the heptameron of Peter Diabano, which so that I believe this is the first ritual he conducted, and this seems to have a huge impact on his on his life. Um, I'd like to go into the grim grimoires for a little bit and just kind of sure. get my head around. You know, what is this practice? What's the point of it? It, it seems extremely risky. Um, it seems like a lot of effort. And it seems you you have these effects like what he describes as the slingshot effect, um, in which terrible things can happen to you. You know, it, it just seems like a whole a whole lot of trouble. Um, so, what is the point of the grimoire? What are they? Where did they come from? Um, and, and what do people get out of it? Well, there's some you know historical. Uh references there and speculations and joe is not a historian i have to point that out he always used to say to me that he he wished he could be more of a a scholar like i was and and that wasn't to say that i wasn't a practitioner but it meant that he recognized that he was lacking in that area of scholarship as well as practice you know he was always a being an aries he was you know you know storm of the beaches kind of guy (laughs) and uh but you know he he said uh you know these grimoires he's come to believe are really the workings of low-level clerics, uh, and they are in many ways. And if we look at the works of, uh, as I mentioned, Peter Mark Adams and his book, The Game of Saturn, in which he meticulously details the uh, aspects of the Solibus Catero and its relationship to uh, dark magic in the Renaissance, you know, we see that he makes the same statement about the role of low-level clerics in the, in the magical underworld, the magical industry of uh, Renaissance Italy. So the same was going on elsewhere and in different places. And uh, these grimoires are grammars or notebooks of magical practices in which 
someone is given the means and the instructions to varying degrees of calling forth what we call a demonic entity. And uh, these demonic entities probably are best understood as simply being very powerful and with that, chaotic forces. And not completely chaotic, but the best description is often is that no matter how it appears, you essentially have a wild animal, so keep it on a very short leash. So what do you want that for? Well, they have these entities. Or I, I say the best way to describe it is it's like you, you're, you're working with criminals. Again, you have to have had experience with criminals to know what this means, right? Mm. That uh, you're, you're making a deal with them. You know, I want you to do this for me, and then this is what you get in return. And since they have no compulsions, they have no moral compulsions, they'll do it. But at the same time, you have to qualify how you want that done so that you know, there's no uh, uh, reverberation, if you will, or limited reverberation. You know, for example, you, you go to a hitman and you make the deal, I, I want you to kill X. Well, you know, they may just blow the whole house up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, okay, well, no, no, that's not what I want. Well, you didn't say that. <laughs> yeah. So when you, the, you notice within the grimoires, there's extremely legalistic language. And that extremely legalistic language is about limiting and qualifying the relationship to very precise terms. And the way I describe it is this way. If you pray to an angel, the angel has your best interests at heart for the most part, we'll say. So the angel will work with you in a way where the desired outcome is harmonious because it knows that there's things you don't know. So it's trying to work this in harmoniously. Whereas you work with the devil, the devil assumes you're an adult and you've thought this through. <laughs> Yeah. And you know what you want, and you're good with it. If you haven't, tough on you. And, and that's kind of a very crude but simple way to begin to understand uh, the relationship. So you have to really understand the relationships of these entities and forces that you're dealing with. Mm. And it is a lot of work, and it is very dangerous. Uh, however, uh, uh, or at least can be very dangerous. However, you know, you you have to understand that's what is the nature of the desperation of the person to achieve whatever that goal happens to be. But again, the problem is the energies always work in through us. It's not like throwing a switch. No matter how externalized that entity is, there has to still be a, a relationship, some means of communicating with you because it's a psychic force. So that means it has to work in and through your psychic energies and ultimately nervous system and, and body as well. Even with all the protections, there still has to be some level of engagement. Okay? Yeah. That, and that's where, uh, just like us, we need a mechanism to communicate. That mechanism is the internet. Yeah. yeah. But our, 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 you and I as individuals and the listeners still have to have fully functioning capacities in order to work with that mechanism. So that's that's where the, the magic comes in and, and that's where the power comes in and the danger comes in uh, are the aims theurgical in the sense that they're designed for uh, you know raising um the human the human soul or spirit or are they purely designed to obtain material 
um, material ends, shall we say, like wealth or fame or, you know, well, the, the descriptions in the text tend to suggest purely material ends. But remember, you have to do these, uh, you have to do these invocations of divine force to come and help raise you and protect you to give you the authority over these beings. Hmm. So there has, there is a, again, it's in the reverse. You notice how I said earlier, when you, you call on, uh, uh, the forces of Jupiter to help you under get wealthy. It, it also reflects to you some of the reasons of your poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, or same here, but it's in the reverse. In order to control these forces, these negative forces, you also you first have to have a good connection to some degree with these uh, positive forces. And that's where it gets tricky for people to understand because you know there's various aspects of, uh, of demonic magic that, that can be very tricky. They're not all they don't all fall under the same rubric, but at least within the grimoires, which were coming out of, again, that uh, Catholic tradition and maybe some degree of Byzantine tradition, uh, and we're coming from the clerical underworld, at least maybe at least the original people who were doing it had that, that, that sense of uh, divine connection that they were trying to bring order to the world. Mm. You know, we're going we're gonna to connect with the, the d- divine, whatever that is, whatever God is or these angels are. They're going to protect us, and, and we're going to use that force to bring some harmony into this world. Okay. That, that's one way of looking at it. Sure. Yeah, but without that, either way, yeah. without, without that higher connection, you're, you're, you're toast. Yeah, yeah. His experience was quite incredible. I think he was the, the first one this is. So he's 15 years old at this point, I believe, and he is stuck in a magical circle for, I think it was three days, wasn't it? Something incredible like yeah, that? It was like two or three days. It was over a weekend. I believe it was New Year's Eve or something, and his parents were out, and he was trying to do something to motivate the, the sale of their property, I believe it was, if I can get that correct. But, you know, he and his friend, you know, they're, they're stuck there uh, because stuff's going on in the house. Now, the, always the question is, they both heard it. They both saw it. You know, is is it real phenomena? Is it just imagined? You know, psychic projection? Who knows? It's still terrifying to them. Yeah. Because they had they had no mechanism to address it with. You know. And remember, I spoke to his friend before I really ever met Joe. So this was I remembered these stories because of the details and the things that were said. Like, oh, I remember this. This was told to me. Yeah. You know. And he's he's pretty clear in his belief that he thinks that they are objective forces, or at least there's no use in believing otherwise for the purpose of the activity. Well, that's correct. And and this is where we have to understand. I just, so you understand, um, the first, well, uh, I have to, I have to look it up while we're, while we're talking. Yeah, sure. Um, the, the notion of the entities is very important because we have to approach magic as a twofold approach. One is psychological integration. That's very important because without that, we're, we're doomed. The problem is most people don't do that properly, and then they jump into magic, like we discussed earlier. Um, when you have that psychological integration, you reduce the so-called slingshot effect because you reduce the internal frictions. However, if you don't, uh, then those frictions are still present, obstacles are still present, and they get removed, and they get removed with tremendous force. Yeah. And... Uh, 
the the effects of that can be very uh, undestabilizing, as as we said earlier. Magic is essentially destabilizing because you have to destabilize a situation in order to change it. Hmm. And um, so those forces which are called upon, those external entities and forces, are very real. Uh, a, lot, a great deal of modern magic is is very human centric, and it thing and you see that in spirituality as a whole. You know the New Age movement or the New Thought movement. It it is a variation of Raja Yoga, and that's good. But Raja Yoga is contextual too. You know it's understood that there's other forces and entities in the universe. Mm. When we decontextualize it. It's just not concerned about them at the moment, okay? <laughs> it's concerned about the mental development and, and, and the mental acuity of the practitioner. Yeah. So, you know, those, those eight rooms of yoga are focused on me. Now, once I focus on me and get that, then I can have a better understanding of what's out there and as well as what's in here. Whereas when we do magic, it's this notion of... Uh, you know, what are these forces? Are they are they really real? Do I really believe in them? How do I recognize them? Uh, oh, they're just an expression of my own. It's just an expression. You see, it's minimized, whereas they are an expression of your own psyche. Remember, microcosm, macrocosm. Hmm. And they also exist quasi-independently. I say quasi because I, I don't really going to claim to grasp the full the fullness of the cosmology involved. Yeah. Just like you and I exist quasi independently. Right. Yeah. It, we, it, yeah. <clears throat> it it seems like an extreme way to to pursue personality change, to be honest. I, I can just think of much easier ways to do it than, <laughs> than what's than what's expressed here. And even um even uh theurgical aims, it, it just seems very, very intense. Is is there a tradition today that people continue to do this that you're aware of and have success with it as a, a viable way of of uh, practicing and living life? Is it? You mean is is Goetia and then the in the demonic magic of of the grimoires a viable way of living life? Yeah, well, you know, is it useful for um, spiritual practice? Are, are there people that do successfully wield it? Um, without, you know, some of the things in your book is that most of the people that had dealt with Goetia came to very, how would you say, unfortunate ends. Um, and I'm not sure, I, I guess it's this projection of the, these things that you talk about, this this shaking up of the personality and exposing these elements that you're trying to get rid of. But is is there a way to practice it without tears or with lesser tears, perhaps? And well, I think... I think there's two things there. First of all, just because they're practicing, it doesn't mean they're trying to get rid of anything in their mm. personality. That needs to be clearly understood. Mm. Many of the people are quite competent and quite comfortable with their personalities, and they, they, they're not trying to change anything in them. What they're trying to change is the physical world around them, sure. their life. They're trying to acquire more wealth, more power, more, uh, you know, uh, more women, more boys, whatever. Okay, they're, they're not... So that's what they're after. And, and they may not necessarily be what we would think of as bad people. Mm. Some of them are very pleasant. I've liked the conversations with them. But they're not people I'm going to necessarily trust. Right. Right. Okay, because they're, they're, their goals are, this is simply a way of furthering a, a fundamentally materialist aim. 
That's all. No, no different than than a variety of forms of witchcraft that, that you see out there. It's there's no real. This isn't about. It's about power. It's not about unfoldment. Hmm. Okay, so you have to understand that. And then with theurgy, it is about unfoldment, and that is very powerful and difficult in some ways. But it can also be uh, very revealing and, and very satisfying because of the different nature of it. Can you bring the two of them together? Yes, you can. Yeah. And but of course, in that case, unfoldment comes first, and then you use the Goetia, or excuse me, the the grimoires in some way as a testing ground. That's one of the ways it can be used. You really need to test your courage. You're saying, look, I I say all these things, but now I've got to put the the rubber to the road. I must test myself against myself. Mm. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Do I have? You know, and <clears throat> excuse me. You see this in other systems where. And of course, Vivekananda says the same thing. Vivekananda says, uh, you know, stop all this talk of hell and devils and demons and devils. We are the demons. You know, go go to where there is life and where there is energy. Go not not weakness and cowardice. Go there and go into the depths of hell and seize it. You know, he's talking quite literally, not just metaphorically. Hmm. And that's where we see Jesus descends into hell and, and redeems the precarious spirits. You know, we have to descend into the hell of our own being. And that's not metaphorical. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that means real nightmares, real trauma, uh, real experiences, and we redeem that. And that's the question. Are we capable of redeeming it? Or are we just like some people, I just want to go and use Goetia to, uh, uh, to get my stuff. Because if you're a decent person, there's not going to be too much reverberation on that. There will be some... But if you're not a decent person, there's going to be hell to pay, literally. And that's why I wrote that one essay, you know, why angels can be douchebags. <laughs> right. You know, these, these entities have, have agendas of their own, yeah. just like you have one. Why, why do you think that, you know, you're not special? Hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. So talking about integrating um, <clears throat> uh, Goetia, and more theurgical practices. It's something Joe did very successfully in his practice of alchemy. Um, and of course, he uh, practiced with uh, Frater Albertus, who was um, the famed alchemist, um, and even Israel Rigardi. And he took the course together, I believe, at the PRS. Um, I just wanted to go into this side of Joe a little bit because it, it kind of stands in, in contrast in some ways, but not really, because he approached alchemy at least as related in your book, with the same kind of results-driven uh, kind of uh, aggression. Um, he really put the pedal to the metal. And I believe he was one of the few people that went through the entire cycle of, of courses at, at the Paracelsus Research um, Institute. Is that correct? Is he, uh, he was well, one of the standout regard students? Regard he went through first. And uh, I think Regardi was, you know, was no, I know some people who were in class with Regardi, okay. And uh, I don't know how much of their time overlapped, but Regardi entered it first, and of course, then he recommends Joe and makes the introduction. And uh, Joe is a very uh, good student. Uh, Albertus uh, knew that he could rely on him for many things and did. I heard many stories about Joe and Albertus from other people, and they are again. The, the language and the description was nearly identical to what Joe would say. So I knew that these were 
true stories. They had come to me from several different sources, which, as we see later on, makes uh, Shevsky all the more uh, intriguing and at the same time confusing. Mm -hmm. okay. So um, he was very dedicated to his work, exceptionally so, and uh, that was the case. And he approached it as the idea that if I'm going to do this, I'm going to get results. Otherwise, why am I doing it? What do I expect out of this? I mean, you you put money in a uh, in an investment, you expect it to bring a return. Otherwise, why are you doing it for? Yeah. And 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 this is where we see that that lackadaisical, vague, nondescript approach that many uh, in the spiritual communities have. They just kind of float in the fantasy land of Yasod, uh, is why they fail, and that's why they don't actually achieve good initiation. It takes rigor. You got to move out of Yasod over to Hod. And that takes rigor. That's the pillar of rigor. Now, the problem is you can pillory yourself there. You know, we see a lot of terrible occultists who are just intellectually arrogant and abusive and rude. You know, they have not managed to integrate uh, a good emotional and a good social aspect in themselves. And that's, mm -hmm. again, the pillar of mercy over at NETSAC. But these are still just fundamentals. This is just basic human nature, okay, basic human personality stuff. So they're not even really good initiates at this point, okay? But to say they're an uh, initiate or an adept would, would really mean that they have what we say the experiences to some degree of what we think of as tifera. Hmm. And that at least is, is part of the requirement of, of good harmony and balance. And just because you have the experience and can carry it over doesn't necessarily mean you live there, so to speak. Hmm. It doesn't mean there's a permanent transformation. You know, you, just because you can lift 100 pounds in an emergency or a fifth of 200 pounds or 500 pounds, that doesn't make you a, a, an athlete or a bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. And it's the same way with these inner experiences. You know, these inner experiences come, but they have to be, there's, there's a period, uh, periodic nature to them and they have to be integrated mm -hmm. because they do disrupt the system. So they have to be integrated. Alchemy helps tremendously with that. And Joe took on some of the most difficult alchemical experiments there were. Uh, you know, whether it be the, the preparation of the GUR for the homunculus uh, or uh, even, you know, working with uh, uh, some mineral work with the, to, to prepare for a stone, at least a white stone or a red stone. And, you know, he saw uh, a great deal of things take place there. And, of course, with Regardi, um, Regardi was, it was uh, an associate to some degree of, of Albertus's. Yeah. They knew each other. One of the and that they had quite a checkered relationship too. If, if Joe's books to be um, to be uh, believed, it was Israel Regardi and the Philosopher's Stone. I think they, they had quite a few falling outs over the years. It seemed. Well, Regardi was a triple Scorpio. I mean, you ever right. date a Scorpio girl? Yeah, I, no, you know, I have a I have a tendency to do that. Actually, Mark, for some reason, I I don't know why. Yeah, it's, but, it's, uh, yeah my friends tell you. me that's <laughs> that that's been my undoing because, you know, that's the same thing. I, don't worry. She's a Scorpio. How do you know? Well, I'm just, you know, it's a litmus test. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If he's looking, that's what it is. We don't need to even ask. <laughs> so it's, it's the nature of intensity. Yeah. Okay. Again, the nature of the intensity. So, um, Rigardi would have these falling outs with people too. Not, not terrible, but he had them. Yeah. You know, he was cantankerous, uh, in, at some point in his own way. Uh, Albertus was the, the alpha dog in charge there, as he had to be. 
and he had very strict rules about things, which you know worked for his benefit. And uh, you know, so you have to obey the teacher, yeah. you know, if you want to get results and and do what's done. And that's what I think people didn't want to do. Joe was very good at taking his teacher's words as law and, and following the instructions to their completion, which is to his benefit. Mm. Because that gave him experiences that other people didn't have. It's like when we do the liturgy of Hermes and you follow it out for the full 40 or 42 days, mm. you will have experiences that other people simply won't because it's a traditional practice. You know, it's a traditional way of doing things that you're, that, so you, you get those results. And that's where we see, uh, of course, with Joe, we see some projection on, onto both Regardi and Albertus as father figures. This is a well-known phenomenon. Everyone has done it. Uh, anyone who says they haven't either means they never really had a good relationship with the teacher or they're lying to themselves. Mm -hmm. it, it's the nature of what happens. Uh, he resolved those eventually. He came to a good relationship with it in the end. And... Uh, but aggression is the word. He was an Aries, and everything was with this full-on martial approach, which needed to be tempered, because that's a very explosive beginning, but you need to temper it for the long haul. Mm. Yeah. A, a quick word on alchemy. <clears throat> and actually, I think it was Israel Rigatti. I, I kind of always had that idea that alchemy was kind of this elaborate archetypal psychological kind of mm -hmm. Jungian kind of work that you undertook to, you know, you know, understand yourself and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But later on, actually, after reading your book, it, be it became abundantly clear to me that I had it completely wrong. And there were probably elements of spiritual development, but it's also actually a practice in the laboratory. And um, this is something that Joe obviously really liked. It, it's, it's a theme throughout his life that he wanted to practice things in the real world that weren't abstract, where you could measure results. Um, can we just talk quickly on alchemy and, and the fact that it is a laboratory discipline? Well, sure. One of the problems, and, and Jean Dubuis mentioned this, and I remember very early on, and I remember it quite clearly because it's like, aha, finally, someone has, has said it. They said, you know, in, in alchemy, there is no illusion. Because either you have transformed something or you haven't. And, you know, in ritual magic, it's very easy to delude yourself, particularly if you don't have a specific goal in mind. See, the goal of the, at least of the grimoires, is very specific. A lot of the goal of modern ritual magic is amorphous. What exactly is it that you're banishing? You know, what exactly is that you're, you're calling forth through these rituals, these invocations? It's not clear. So that lack of clarity leads to a great deal of, again, delusion. That's not the case in alchemy, because either you've done it and you have a result or you haven't. So that's where results need to be brought to all tables of activity. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we say that, um, you know, in... Uh, in computer programming, uh, there is, someone told me, there is a phrase that goes, you know the function of the program by the results. 
what's the purpose of the program? You know it by the results. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we always say that by the results, you will know them. We have to stay focused on results, not theoretical ideas, not abstractions. And that's why you see so much confusion in the modern world, because the philosophical and political ideas, particularly that have permeated and insinuated themselves into various spiritual domains, are a false idealism. And whenever they fail, it's never that person's fault. It's Mm -hmm. never the movement's fault. It's never that the ideal was false and could never be realized to begin with. The excuse is always somewhere else. And that's anathema to initiation. That's anathema to genuine spiritual progress. Genuine spiritual progress is I am fully responsible for my life. Mm-hmm. I take responsibility for my 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 life and, and the things that come from it, of it. Yeah. So uh, we need to focus that we, we we know the value of something by the results. It's just, you know, as above, so below, as below, so above. So we know someone's value in the spiritual dimension in many ways based upon what they can bring to the table in life down here. Mm. Interestingly, Brigatti, um, I think he got stuck. Is it the mineral antimony? He had an issue with that. He actually burned his lungs, didn't he? Um, Well, antimony is tricky because it contains uh, uh, sulfur and arsenic, so it's dangerous. And... um, he was working in his uh, lab, which he had in a, in a shed, and unfortunately, uh, he did injure himself twice. And once, I think, uh, it involved ultimately putting him in, on oxygen. Uh, so he was he was skilled. I understand that he was skilled. That that was you know, but that you know, accidents can happen, and accidents are when we're not paying attention. You know, so that's what you know, uh, that's what can happen. Hmm. And and um, Joe was very successful at alchemy, so he went through this this course pretty much in its entirety. And as you say, he got got into is it it's called the waterwork, isn't it, with the the gur and the homunculus, which is something I wanted to talk about a little bit because your average person and to some extent me myself would read that account and just think that's got to be it's got to be rubbish, surely, surely. But I guess I have no reason particularly to doubt it. But what is it? What is the point of, of that kind of work? And why did Frater Albertus kind of push him into trying to, to raise the homunculus? It's very simple. He knew that Joe had the balls to do it. Right. And, and do you think he, it, was, it was an interest for Frater Albertus or was it just a... Yes. Yeah. I have no doubt about that. Albertus uh, was very good at... Uh, compartmentalizing people and things. Okay. Wow. So he was, you know, compartmental and, and, you know, we all do that to some degree. Some people are better at it. So, you know, he knew what he could rely on Joe for and he knew what he could rely on other people for, but doesn't necessarily mean those two people ever met. Yeah. Yeah. And it seemed to take a lot out of Joe when it failed, by the way, he, he, he accounts at the end of, <clears throat> at the end of the whole thing. Yes, it appears that way. And, uh, I think this goes into an area of occultism that going back to, you know, Peter Mark Adams book, the game of Saturn, yeah. you know, is hinted at in terms of Byzantium magic. And, uh, you know, we hear a lot of talk about sex magic, uh, particularly as a result of Crowley, Crowley and, yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, 
Paschal, Beverly Randolph. However, that, those notions of, of sexual magic are really simplistic and primitive uh, when, you, when you think about them. You know, the, the real notion of the, uh, uh, the sexual fluids, which is primarily uh, the humans, the male sperm, but also blood, particularly uh, menstrual blood, uh, is well documented in, in Indian Tantra, but also in Vajrayana Buddhism. Uh, when we hear about bodhicitta, bodhicitta, compassion, compassion, you know, that bodhi, that's a terrible translation. The word is more of awakened mind or mind of heart, mind of courage. But the ultimate bodhicitta is in the, the, the essences, and the essences are those. Uh, you know, we talk about taking refuge in the, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, but also there's the channel winds and drops. And those drops are the, uh, the uh, fluids, the red and white fluids, as they're called. And that how they transform energetically are transformed and rarefied for the creation of uh, the rainbow body, body of light, as we would call it. Uh, and in Indian Tantra, I think they refer to that as the transformation into the ojas. But this has to be truly understood as a reality. And that the use of these various fluids and forces in a variety of shapes and forms, not just internally to ourselves, is something that... Uh, is, is quite frankly is is horrifying to most people. They they just don't have the wherewithal to, to even have the intellectual discussion, let alone to consider the the actual application. Mm. And the homunculus is one of those applications. Because yeah. you're dealing directly with the energies of life itself. Which is funny because you know so many people do these breathing exercises of pranayama, but pranayama simply means mastery of life energy. Right. That's what you're talking about. Because if you're not breathing, you're dead. So you better be mastering your life energy. <laughs> yeah. And and this is this is in some ways an extension of that to to put it in in some rough rough equivalency, mastery of the life energies. Sure. Um, did and he? There, some, yeah, sorry, go. I think there's a relationship between the homunculus. And this is just my idea. I believe there's some relationship between the homunculus and uh, the creation of living forms for immortality, physical immortality on some level. And I believe that there's some relationship between it and uh, sexual yogas of creating a lineage. This is known in Tibetan Buddhism as a tolku. Hmm a magical generated line, you know, where the individual reincarnates into that family line because it has a better genetic propensity for the work and also inherits the resources. Again, in Game of Saturn, Peter Mark Adams talks about that with regards to the Renaissance magic. You know, and I mentioned that to you that I'm familiar with it from German folk magic as well. But these are, these are considered ideas that uh, really shake people up because we're getting to the hearts of reality itself. And, and the universe, the universe suddenly takes on a different shade when you start talking about this stuff. Yeah, no, it certainly does. But I, I find it endlessly fa fascinating. I, you know, it's just, it's incredible to me. And and just reading that account was something else. But um, yeah, I, I guess it, this this leads me to segue to you know some of the more unusual elements of of Joe's personality. Um, uh, you uh, give the account that um, he said that he was involved in NASA research 
um, for many years. And that also mm-hmm. he was involved in um, the space-time continuum and research in time travel. Um, mm-hmm. Would you like to go into that a little bit? Because th- this is a, one of the bits of his personality that I had a, a lot of trouble getting my head around, um, to be honest, how that fit in with with who he was and 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 uh, why he thought these things were important at all. Well, that's the interesting part of Belashevsky is that his uh, occult life was well known to people, at least to a group of people, and therefore I could verify it. I could, it's just that simple. I've stated many times. Uh, it, his mundane life is where we get into the areas of confusion. Hmm. Okay. It is in his mundane life where we get a lot of the contradictions of where he worked or where he didn't work, what he said and what he did, what he told me versus what his wife told me. Um, and I think that his – and a lot of things he would often tell me. I mean he, I'd find out were true. Years later, they'd often be true. But where he got that information from, I don't know. I can't tell you. Yeah. I just uh, – and I, I don't pretend to. I just know that what he said about his professional life was was dismissed entirely by his wife to me hmm. and yet at the same time um he did well i mean she worked uh, they worked they they had a lot of stuff um for whatever that was worth and um he had a devoted clientele of students who who appreciated what he they, they he did for them or he believed they did for him um why time travel? I mean, the NASA thing is neither here nor there, but why time travel? And I think that um, he he fundamentally was unhappy with his life. And I, I don't think anyone hasn't gotten to a point, you know, in their life where they just wish, you know, if I could just go back and do this differently. You know, if I just said this instead of that. If I treated him or her this way instead of that way, it's not simply a matter of oh, I want to go back in time and you know invest in Microsoft. <laughs> you know, it's 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 about how can I take what I've learned and use it, because there's no sense of a future. You know, there's no. There's no certainty of an afterlife. There's no certainty of that kind of survival that we talk about. You have hosts of esoteric and yogic practices that are designed to guarantee that or to at least build that in some fashion. Um, Here, it's more or less a doctrine of faith. You know, you close your eyes at night and you hope you wake up in the morning. So Leshevsky was looking at time travel as a mechanism for possibly entering and alternate dimension, not necessarily this one, same time, space line, and just, you know, starting from scratch. And really, how is that any different from, when we think about it, how is that any different from astral projection or uh, any other kind of notion of, uh, of alternate realities, psychic domains and dimensions, physical worlds, fairy world, you know, or any of that? Do do you think he really was engaged in that in that work? Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I do. I think so. And I think he had some good results too. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. I I think also that people like him, 
who are extremely brilliant, but somewhat unpredictable. Okay. Uh, I believe that they are isolated intentionally. And I'm thinking of a friend of mine who, who, again, who told me about the engineer he knew who lived out in the desert. So the fellow was brilliant, and his psychic insights were were staggering. He was he was, but he even said, um, "There's a limit to what I can say and do." Hmm. And people don't really, if you unless you begin to meet people like that. Or someone of the exceptional, rarefied personality of, of Jean Dubuis. Uh, this notion is an abstraction. It's like a fantasy to you. Hmm. So, um, you know, the, the universe, for whatever world, the reason this world, our lives have a certain karmic arc. And you can impact that arc on your own. Yet at the same time, and this goes back to why angels can be douchebags. That arc, when you work on yourself, it's one thing. Is now you deal with your own negativity. But when you try to make a difference in the lives of others, you're dealing with their negativity. When you try to make the difference in a community, a nation, a world, now you're dealing with its demonic forces. You understand? Hmm. Yeah. That's why um, you see occult orders collapse so quickly because they're not really prepared to deal with the negativity. They're approaching only the idealism, whatever that idealism happens to be. And they're not prepared to deal with the resistance that is essential for the growth to take place, for the muscle to be built for the intellectual acumen to occur, for the artistic skill to be expressed, for the perception of self to be realized. They're not prepared for that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. This seems to be a dichotomy and it just keeps coming through. And, and maybe I'm just not getting it properly, but there seems to be a dichotomy where, you know, as maybe in Rigardi's terms, you, you have the character structure, because of course he was into Wilhelm Reich and, um, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And you have these, you know, as, as Reich would probably put it, you know, neurotic um, character structures or muscular armor, whatever you want to call it. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems like there's a dichotomy between that and and the magical world and the, the world of um, theurgy and theurgical practices. And that really, it's a good idea to get a hold of that, of what's in the physical world and your, your psychology, perhaps. Um, before pursuing these kinds of practices to do you think that's valuable because i just keep seeing this come up and up over and over and you need book. to well you need to understand that joe did yeah sure, I mean, he, okay. he worked with he worked with regardy he worked with a reiki therapist out of philadelphia okay and he did this stuff yeah right but the the degree of the the degree of the trauma the degree of the childhood trauma was severe yeah sure yeah, so you know, how do you how do you overcome that? That's why P used to say, "How do we get along so good?" And I said, "Well, it's simply because I don't expect you to be any different than you are." Yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to change you. Mm. Yeah, and that's and that's part of you know 
why we see so many trouble, so many problems in contemporary movements like the OTO, you know, or or other things. I'm not in the OTO. I never have been, and I am not now, and I will never be. Hmm. But why do we see these problems? Well, because too many people are trying to force political views on others and to change them to the way they think they should or ought to be. These moral imperatives, rather than working on themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can extrapolate that to any pick a group, Unitarian Universalists. I mean, they should just be a uh, a, a pact already, a political action committee, you know, or or any of these groups, because they're not accepting individuals as they are, and then working from there. Hmm. It's trying to have a preconceived notion of the direction, and that well, you're not there yet, and you need to be here. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you know, magic doesn't work that way. We're talking about the phenomena of self creation, as uh, uh, as Levy said and others said, that takes untold periods of time from the beginning of beginningless time, as they would say in Vajrayana. Yeah. You know, and now we're, we're, we're going through that, what, the, uh, the fall from grace or involution, as we might call it, uh, that is also firmly stated in uh, you know, the, the, uh, the hymns of Orpheus, the Shadian oracles. And then what? Well, then there's the return, the path of return of self-awareness. And, and how does that take place? It takes place through friction. I become aware of where my finger ends, not because I, I know I have a finger, but because when I hit something, you know, I become aware of my limits only by encountering them. Mm. And that's where Saturn comes in, this role of Saturnian limitation, which we were pretending, uh, you know, doesn't exist. I mean, the current events right now is simply, you know, six months ago, we got mugged by Saturn. That's all that, you know, just got to learn to accept these things so that you can deal with them, hmm. so that you know properly how to manage it. Yeah. And Saturn is about time, time, space. Time, space management. Yeah. There's some essays on my on my blog, Vox Hermes, about discussions I had with Joe along this notion of time, space, and psychic encounters that we have. Um, one about UFOs and floating heads and stuff like that. And so I think folks might want to read those because those are kind of interesting. Absolutely. In terms yeah. of what, what goes on. Yeah, if you could send me the links to that, maybe I can um, publish it in the show notes. That'd be excellent. I'd oh. like to read them as well. Yeah. Okay, I'll send you three or four of them that were pretty good. Um, um, yeah, great. So I think that's that's where we're at with it. And how do you how do you refine your personality? How do you refine your character? Well, especially if you don't even know what you're doing. Yeah. And that, and you know, and if you're lucky and you have a good therapist or someone like Regardier, Alberts to help you, you can go a fairly long way. Hmm. Towards the end of the book. Um, the situation that Joe finds himself in, and I won't ruin it for people because I, I recommend that they go and buy it and read it because it's amazing. Um, there's, there's a kind of crescendo where things appear to have gone very wrong for Joe for a, a number of variables that I won't go into. Um, and he says, quote, the Western tradition does not work. It does not work. I know alchemy works, but magic, it is too unbalanced. What proof do we have? about who wrote it and why I am done and I will never perform another evocation to visible appearance again. I performed many evocations, five of them major, but never again. And there's a theme throughout your book where a number of, he, he relates stories about Rigardi and other people, how they, they go to magic for a little while, then they just leave it alone. Um, and it, it seems to me to be a fairly scathing indictment. And I don't know if he just flat out 
was freaking out in that moment and was saying that as a result of that, or if he truly meant it and he became disheartened with the movement just in general. Um, do you have any insight into that? I mean, obviously, given what you do, you don't agree, but um, I thought it was a fairly scathing indictment by someone like that um, to, to say that. Well, we have to understand what he means by the words. And uh, so in, in one respect, I agree with him. But we have to understand the words, what the words mean. And again, he's referring to magic as the ceremonial magic of evocation. And that the, the results are often too unreliable because of the entities that you're dealing with are unreliable. So that being said, okay, that being said, um, you know, when you look around at the people who've been involved in a lot of this goetic magic and this uh, grimoire magic, even even the people I know who've been successful at it, they're people I don't want to be around. Mm. Many of them are just a disaster. And and you look at what happened to uh, New Falcon Press. I mean, almost everybody there, they argued with each other. They, they didn't like each other. There's things that are said back and forth that aren't pleasant. Joe would often say that uh, Hyatt was, he trusted Hyatt. He said he, was, he trusted him. Mm. Okay, but you look at these other people involved, they came to bad ends. Was it Jason S. Black or whatever his name S. was? Jason I mean? Black, I think you mean, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah so he, he came to a horrible end. And people just, and when I went to research what actually happened, no one really wanted to talk about it. Right. That's because you're a you know what that means? It means you're a liar. Yeah, yeah. You don't really want to talk about what happened. Mm. And we see this again and again and again when we're pushing material out there for people without the prerequisite preliminary practices. Mm. You know, they're not prepared, and they pop a cork, and it's no different than a bunch of teenagers playing around a Ouija board over and over and over. At some point, you know, something happens. And that's what I, you know, where I'm in agreement with, you know, the, the notion of what are the preliminary practices? What are the preliminary things you must do before you get engaged in this? Well, that'd be really good to talk about because we've gone through a lot of the shortcomings and, and you know, problems that people have. You know, what are, the, what are the constructive ways that if someone wants to pursue this kind of uh, practice, how can they get started? What's a good way to, to ground yourself? Well, you, you have to be honest with yourself about why you're engaging in it. Mm. And, and what is it about yourself you have to change? Because if you know anyone who's ever had any uh, involvement in finance, they're going to tell you uh, the worst money is one money and inherited money. Right. Yeah. You know, you, you, you just, you know, somewhat easy come, easy go. Uh, I mean, I, I had a friend. His girlfriend was an exotic dancer, very well-known. In fact, I can uh, point to some books that her photograph was in by well-known celebrities. I mean, okay. that's how well-known. Right. And uh, beautiful, beautiful girl. He told me how much money she made. So where is it? It's all gone. All gone. 
this is way back when, but and began to realize, you know, and I see that in my own work in social services, you just can't give people stuff. They just blow it because hmm. they don't have the framework themselves to handle it. They don't understand the, the relationship involved. Now, some do. Some can step up and, and change their lives, but many people can't. It's just that reality. It's hard to grasp. People don't accept it. Hmm. So, you know, you, 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 you pour this power into a, a vessel that's malformed in some way, and that's where the slingshot effect takes place. That's where the bad stuff happens because it's got to shake out the rust. It's got to shake out the obstacles. It's yeah. got to shake out all those things that keep you from being a fuller, better expression of who you can and will be. So unless you're willing to, <clears throat> excuse me, go through those troubles, and that's where the heartache comes in, then, um, you know, it just, it just makes things worse. Hmm. I always thought so a lot of people, yeah, sorry. A go. lot of people go into denial. That's where we see the pathology. And I wrote that book, Pathology of the Sublime, hmm. because people, there's a lot of pathologies that come up and, and they're not addressed. So you really have to, the best thing is, is I'd say if, if go through maybe two or three years or four years of really solid, hard therapy, painful therapy, do everything you don't want to do. If you don't, you don't want to work at Walmart, fine, go do it. You know, yeah. do everything you don't want to do. Because that's what you're running from. And magic is going to show that to you ex exponentially. It's going to pull out all your weaknesses and hold it up to you. And that's the guardian of the threshold. That's the demonic terror that people have to ultimately face. Yeah. That's more important than whatever's on the outside of the circle. You, then, then the magic works for you. Hmm. I, I often wonder when, when looking at these kind, like the modern world in general, and and from a perspective of say Rene Guénon or uh, Julia Savola again, just to bring them back into the narrative, this this idea of the Kali Yuga and this kind of solidification that that they say is going on in the world. I often wonder, you know, compared to someone in the medieval period from the height of that period, um, where a lot of these practices came from, uh, are these practices even accessible to a modern person? Because I often wonder just by virtue of most people's shortcomings, both spiritual and even intellectual for a lot of people, you know, are these practices going to die out um, because people just are not able to to access them in the way that they were designed to be accessed? Boy, well, that's a huge question, isn't it? I mean, yeah. we see within uh, Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana, we see within Indian Tantras even, you know, the explosion of the ease of access of information mm. over the last 20 years, and in the last 10 in particular. And that explosion of access has even accelerated now in the last six months because of COVID. And that's around because the notion is, you know, you only publish something or make it easily accessible when you think that it will not be sustainable in the previous form. Yeah. So, you know, what many people celebrate as a great access also means they don't know what the hell to do. Hmm. They're awash. It's, a, it's like a giant buffet and they suffer from bulimia. You know, they go over and they binge and then they purge because they don't know what to do. There's so much, so much to choose from and they don't have the discrimination to, to make the proper choices because it's also fascinating and it's understandable. Mm. You know, it's like walking into a toy store when you're a kid. It's like, wow, look at all this stuff. Yeah. 
or walking into a candy store. Wow, you know, you're going, you know, the worst time to, to go shopping for food is when you're hungry. And then you buy everything, you know. So it's the same way here. Now, will it survive? Well, yes, the question is in what form. And the, the prophecies on the Kali Yuga suggest that uh, at the end of the age, the, the, the practices that will survive when all others have got, died away are both a devotional practice and a kind of a, a, a Zochen or, or direct perception practices. Um, that may not have much meaning to you, most of your listeners. However, that means that the performance of, say, grimoire magic, as we now understand it, will become, uh, I don't want to say nearly impossible, but uh, most likely and very limited. I mean, even try to do it now. You need specific space to draw these circles in and to be undisturbed for several days, maybe, yeah. maybe weeks even. How many people have that spare that spare time and that spare uh, space? Particular types of trees that we don't have here in Australia. That's kind of what <laughs> prohibited uh, me from being able to do anything. Is uh, we don't have well, what is it oak trees or whatever it was. It just made it hard, and, you know. Yeah. And you can work around that. Yeah. That's you know as much as many people purists will disagree with me. You can work around that because there's a quality or association. So as long as you are profoundly doing your best, you know, Agrippa and Paris is very clear on that. So is Paracelsus, that it's better to do a, a ritual done poorly to the best of your ability is better than a ritual done well, but without any real use to it. Hmm. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you have the desire and the juice that is going to take you very far. Bruno and Ficino are very clear on this as well as are the, the, the Arab sources they use. So, but that's where Joe is very firm about the shortcuts, people always trying to take shortcuts. Yeah, you because know, they come to magic as a shortcut. I don't want to face the fact that I have to, you know, stop drinking a big gulp every day, uh, feeling sorry for myself, spending too much time playing video games or looking at porn. And uh, I got to go out and do a job that I really don't like. Yeah. But, you know, in not liking it, it's going to motivate me to do better, to look for something else. Instead, what I want is the world to, you know, just do what I, what I want it to do. And, and that's chaos. That's why you see the chaos that we see in some of the cities in uh, the United States today. Yeah. You know, because... There's certain things you have to do that are wonderfully unpleasant. And uh, that's how you get ahead in life. Yeah. That's, how you, that's how you realize your potential. You only realize your potential by, by facing your shortcomings and then overcoming them. Um, and, and magic is going to make you do that. And that's what the old school magic. I mean, it's very demanding. Like you said, that's part of its preliminary practice is acquiring all these things. You know, you, you, you've committed yourself emotionally and intellectually to the outcome. Mm. Now, I'm not going to go through all that work if I, don't if I don't want and get exactly what I want and get. Do you understand? Yeah, no, that's very clear. Very clear. Yeah. So we've kind of established that if, if one wants to pursue this path, you've, you've recommended a couple of years of good therapy, 
if if you have that accessible to you. Um, is there anything else? And we have well, we have some think? courses. You know, yeah. we have some courses at the institute which are worthwhile. Pay attention to those. Sure. Okay. You know, and take your time. Mental training is the best. I recently did an interview with uh, uh, Craig Williams on Indian practices for Western esotericism. Hmm. And those are extremely important. Joe was really big into new thought. And uh, I, as was I, because I experienced it growing up. And new thought is basically a variation of Raja Yoga. Okay. Uh, and really the mental training that comes from that is extremely important. Hmm. So have mental training. Also have a devotional practice. Uh, I think the devotional practice of uh, the Liturgy of Hermes is a very good place to start because it's traditional and it'll ground you into, uh, you know, a, a, a you know a devotional sacrificial work in which you have to put effort into this. You have to learn what it means to put effort into a practice. Sure. And uh, from that, why you get results? You get results with effort. You don't get results with just showing up or mm. trying it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that will help you give you a baseline. And that baseline is where do I fall when everything collapses? You know, that's your safety line. Like if you think of this as mountain climbing, you know, you know when someone's mountain climbing, you often see they, they put a safety line on, you know, and a new one, and a new one. And they, as they go up, you know, someone maybe behind them is pulling this up. But say they fall, you know, how far are they going to fall? You know, without a safety line, well, you're just going to drop and be dead. Yeah. So your your preliminary practices are your safety line. This is, if all things collapse and it gets bad, this is what I have to rely on. Sure. It's kind of like, you, you know, know, something to hold on to, basically, that is going to get you through. Essentially, yeah. essentially, yeah, it's your psychological keep. You know, yeah. in a castle, you know, you have the outer walls, the moat, the outer walls, and then you have the keep. And if everything goes south, you know, what's the final point of retreat? And uh, you have to have that within yourself. You have to have a, a final point of retreat, which is not the final point of retreat. In fact, in fact, it's the point of origin. It's the point of beginning. This is where all my juice comes from. You know, because the keep isn't the last thing built in a castle. It's the first. And then they move outward from there. Mm. So it's the same way here. You have to establish a firm relationship with, with your, your, your inner self, whatever that happens, how you express that or understand that. And at least a firm confidence in that relationship. Now, otherwise, you're, you're appealing to these external forces. And, uh, you know, that's like calling for your mommy. Yeah. You know, it may, it may work. It's, you know, there, there's something about our nature where that seems to, to kick in and help us. But if, if you do something really stupid, you know, you, you'd be lucky. You may get out with your sanity. So, so you have to establish what is sanity, mm-hmm. what is baselines. You know, our, our inherent nature is sane. Like in Vajrayana, they say, our inherent nature is sane. So what is that like? What does it mean to be a sane person? Think about that. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if and then if you have that, then dealing with all these her- terrible appearances and terrible forces is, uh, is considerably easier, if mm-hmm. not, not a big deal, or not even essential. Yeah. So I've, I've run this a little bit according to some of the things I wanted to go through. And I, I, I wanted to look at alchemy and Goetia through Joe's story a little bit. So it may seem a little bit muddled, muddled for some people, but 
I thought it, I thought it was valuable because there's a lot of valuable lessons in Joe's life, just in general. Um, I, I think. Um, just some final considerations. You know, I, I just like to hear from you. You know, what what are some of the important lessons that stand out to you about Joseph's life and his practice that maybe people should know about more widely? Well, that uh, nothing beats hard work. And hard work means focus and dedication to an action that will bring outcomes. And you know what those outcomes are. Mm-hmm. So precision. Nothing beats precision. And with that, uh, the importance of good teachers. He had good teachers. I mean, we can say what we want about Rigardi or even anyone else, Robertus, but they were good. They're, they're good people. And they, they did have his best interests at heart. Um, nothing, uh, beats learning genuine compassion, a feeling of goodwill towards yourself, and then a feeling of goodwill towards those around you, even those who are your enemies. And when we have goodwill towards our enemies, it doesn't mean that they're not our enemies because they wish us ill. We know that. That's why they're our enemies. It's not like we wish them ill. I don't care what they do. You know, if they weren't bothering me, it wouldn't be a problem, right? Mm-hmm. But it's you You recognize that, you recognize them for where they're at, and you respond accordingly. You're not over the top. You respond accordingly, whatever that situation needs. So genuine compassion, opening of the heart, the mind, the inner self, is foundational to this work. That's what we talk about theurgy. And having that experience allows us to understand the difficult components in ourselves and others. It doesn't make them go away in others. It doesn't mean they're not a problem anymore. It just means we understand them better and therefore have a better chance of dealing with them. It doesn't necessarily make them go away in us either, but at least it gives us the avenue for changing ourself self-creation. The environment Joe grew up in was not one of compassion. Okay? It was not. And that hardness that was constantly there in school, in the work environment, in church, all these things, uh, very, very hardening of the body. And with that, the mind and the emotions. Mm. So we have to learn to be demanding of ourselves while being a little more generous to others. Not foolish, but just give them a little more leeway. But at the same time, that self-love and self-respect and self-appreciation has to be there. And that's where I say the true death of Leshevsky was anger. Anger killed him. Yeah. You make that point that's that what, anger and addiction seem to be quite right. common amongst a lot of these kinds of people. A lot of these Oh, so much. And with that is sarcasm. You know, sarcasm is not humor. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that's why I see, you know, you know, that's why I say when we look at the current political climate, you know, particularly political correctness, why do I say it's evil? Because it has no sense of humor. It doesn't allow itself to be mocked or joked about. Mm. Lenin didn't allow that. Stalin didn't allow that. You know, there's, it takes itself also seriously. So you have to have a sense of humor 
And by that, I don't mean sarcasm. So, because that's just another form of anger. And, and, and that has to, you, you doesn't mean that we don't experience, again, those martial energies, but really handling them is, is tricky because it says, you know, the seeds of gold are found in Mars. You know, the real energy of adepthood is not just the realization of self in Tiferes, but the realization of self and the actualizing it through the energies of Mars and the expansion in Hesed. Mm. You know, so it's, it's uh, the, those are the things we're dealing with. Yeah, I think that's a very pertinent um, point to finish up on. Because I guess, yeah, obviously our earlier conversation, we were talking about the world at large. And um, yeah, there's a whole lot of anger and not a whole lot of um, self-reflection and humor at the moment. Yeah. It seems quite quite serious. So I, I hope that um, things get better over there for you. Um, Thank you very much. I'd like to just finally give you the floor um, just to give any updates on projects, websites, books, et cetera, that you think might be of interest that you are coming up soon or anything else you think well, is relevant. Well, I would just encourage folks to go to Amazon and, and look at our full list of books. I think that egregores is, is really essential uh, to understand how collectivism and collective entities work in our lives and how to free ourselves from them. And at the same time, we have some wonderful coursework on traditional magic, uh, as well as uh, some commentaries on, on modern practices that are very beneficial uh, that can be found at uh, Institute for Hermetic Studies at teachable.com, the Teachable website. And uh, of course, our, our blog, Vox Hermes, just look that up, Vox Hermes, uh, it'll come up. And uh, there's wonderful essays on there and, and interviews that you can listen to. Uh, of course, we encourage you to... Uh, not just subscribe to our free course, uh, Unfolding the Rose, which is a six-hour audio program, but you know, take that and also go with that and, and subscribe, enroll in our actual courses, enroll in our coursework, because uh, it is one of the few things that we can say we stand by, that we guarantee is the best of a guarantee that you can give with this stuff, that if you really do these practices and do these works, even if it's as simple as the Liturgy of Hermes, the Hermetic Retreat, that you will see tremendous benefits in your in your practice and in your life and in your change of perception uh, because it, it brings a, a fullness to it that we we often don't get in, in many of the other things that are, are, are presented to us yeah so please uh, go go in that direction you'll, you'll be glad you did sure and i'll put all that stuff in the show notes so everyone has access to it and i'll just second that um your material is excellent and I recommend it to everyone out there. It's it's uh, probably the best that's out there at the moment that I've come across anyway. So um, thanks again, Mark. Um, this has been like an amazing conversation. Uh, really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. And uh, I'd just like to thank you for your generosity um, in coming on the show and talking to me. It's been, been amazing. Well, thank you very much. And uh, it's been great being here. Excellent. Thanks, Mark. Okay. So three, two, one, we're yeah. done with the show. Yeah, I'm we are. Unplug this so I can hear you without these in my ear. Yeah, can you yeah. hear me now? Yeah, I can, mate. Yeah, yeah, it's excellent. Oh, good. I get that ringing in my ear after too long of those earbuds in there, you know? Yeah, it hurts. Definitely yeah, it hurts, it hurts for sure. I'm getting a bit of um, feedback there. Hang on, let me just... Um... Yeah, it's because because of, of my speaker. I'm, I'm not... I got to be closer to the I, to the, my, my computer. Right. Cool. Yep. So I'm going to go away and edit everything. It's a bit of a labor of love. So it takes me a little while, usually a couple of weeks, 
But um, if you want, I can do it up and send it to you so you can listen to it first or if you're okay with me releasing it, I can do that as well. No, just, just release it at the start date we used. You can keep the other stuff for yourself. I don't care. But just start with the start date where we do, we do the introduction and move forward. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, I'll keep the... Uh... I'll keep the politics out of it, I think. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, yeah, we don't need the aggravation for that. People aren't people don't want to listen to that. They want to hear about Lashevsky. I don't know. Actually, the, the crowd I have, they're, they're kind of interested in, in politics. They'd probably kind of like it. But um, Well, I mean, on this cast, we could do something separate if you want to. Yeah, okay. Okay, that sounds good. For sure. For sure. Good. Yeah. Great. I got to run. It's getting near noon here. I got to have lunch. Yeah, I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, see you, mate. Bye.